welcome back to another episode of the UserWise podcast. I'm your host Shrikar Tarapudi and today I'm joined by none other than our founder Shannon Clark. <laughs> the UserWise podcast is brought to you by UserWise, a San Jose-based human factors consulting firm. Um, our consultants partner with medical device companies to aid in the design process and to help develop medical devices that are safe and effective to use. So the goal with this UserWise podcast is to help pull back the curtain and demystify guidance from the FDA surrounding human factors. Um, so, but in this episode, I'm very excited to talk to you about company-wide news and all kinds of uh, fun stuff. Thanks for being here, Shannon. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I guess in the previous, in the past two episodes, we kind of talked a little bit about what human factors is and what kind of things we do here at UserWise in terms of uh, human factors processes. But um, that's all fun and nice and great, but <laughs> it would be nice to get a background into what UserWise or how UserWise came to be. I work for UserWise, so I know a little bit about how that happened, but it would be great for our listeners if you could maybe give us, take us through that time capsule. Well, thanks, Shrieker, for the opportunity to share this story with you. Um, back in 2014, I worked at Intuitive Surgical, and uh, at that time, the FDA guidance, had, the draft guidance on human factors had come out in 2011, and a lot of companies were following suit, starting to recognize human factors, but it still hadn't quite hit yet, and there were some companies that still were sort of putting off doing human factors, but it had reached the startup community at um, Stanford Biodesign and Fogarty Institute, so some founders of companies there reached out to me seeking my guidance as I was a human factors engineer, and I started to see that there were a lot of companies that really needed a lot of help with respect to human factors. So. I started consulting for those companies, and from there I built my human factors practice and uh, hired our first full-time employee apart from me in 2016. Wow. And that's the same year that the FDA came out with their final guidance on human factors, so it was great timing for growing the company. Yep. And uh, I feel like by 2019, we were a quote-unquote real company. We had <laughs> operating business operating procedures and sort of a well-oiled machine of a team. And uh, from there, we've been able to accomplish a ton. That's awesome. Um, 2016 is definitely a great year to start a human factors consulting firm, especially focused in medical devices, you know, guidance and everything that came yeah, out. The timing really worked out for me. And I think the best advice that I would give to an entre entrepreneur who wants to start their own consultancy or human factors <laughs> practice. Uh, I, I got a lot of input from people saying, oh, you're too young to do this, wait longer to do this, wow. or there isn't a market for human factors. You'll never be able to fill up your day with human factors consulting. And I saw that I could do it and that there was a need for human factors that no one else was really seeing back then. And I uh, was clever enough to ignore this advice that I was getting. And I'm just really grateful that I, I kind of paved my own path here. I'm grateful to that too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but that's such a fascinating story. I didn't know that. I mean, I guess like 50% of that story I knew, but then it's always, um, oh, 
another reason to be excited doing this podcast. I was telling, uh, I think this was in one of the earlier episodes where I was talking about how this podcast like helps me connect with my colleagues and you know take out time to really get to know them. And this is one of those instances. That's great. Um, we talked a little bit about how Alden and Riley got into human factors. Now, let me pose that same question to you. Like, what brought you into human factors in the first place? Like, why were you in that field? Like, what brought you in? Yeah. Well, when I applied to University of Southern California, they had a question on the application that says, what's your dream job when you grow up? And I said, I want to be the CEO of a product design company in Spain. Whoa. And I thought that was really interesting that I ended up CEO of UserWise, <laughs> uh, which is sort of a product design company focused on medical devices. So early on, I just fell in love with the idea of designing products to be usable because I saw the products around me that were frustrating or not well designed. And I studied mechanical engineering and um, kind of found my way to human factors as I was working at Abbott Laboratories slash AbbVie. Um, I had the opportunity to apprentice Ed Izrowski, who is a leading expert in the field and the director of human factors at Abbott. He was also the head of the IEC 62366 standards committee, which drew me into that standards development and contributing to this indu the industry in that manner. Um, so with that experience, I just totally fell in love with the idea of usability testing, bringing a product together with a prospective user in a use environment that's simulated and then trying to predict the future. What's going to actually happen when we sell this product? This process just makes so much sense to me. And I saw a lot of different companies not following the process and a lot of products that clearly did not have usability baked into them. And I really wanted to change that about the world. And I feel like at UserWise, we are contributing a lot to making that change happen by conducting the full human factors process, usability testing, and ironing out all of these poorly designed features and turning them into delightful, easy to use products. Wow. Um, I, I guess that, that just is like such a different career path from me that, you know, it's so fascinating for me to kind of get a peek into that. What was uh, your career path? How did you <laughs> find human factors in medical devices? Um, we talked about this a little bit, but uh, I guess I started off by um, kind of having this passion for computer science, the, the point where computer science meets the user. So human-computer interaction was this elective in undergrad that I kind of took, and it, it brought me into this field. And I guess one thing that I didn't say uh, in the previous episodes, there's another angle there. Um, my mom's a doctor and she had a lot of psychology books. And as a child, I was always fascinated with psychology. And when I found this field that was just the intersection of engineering and psychology, like uh, that's it, I was so excited, I was hooked. And that you know, kind of motivated me to do a, get a master's degree in human factors from Arizona State University. And then, you know, there I worked a little bit on medical devices and that the fam familial connection for me with my mom working in the hospital. Full circle. <laughs> my mom's definitely happier now. Um, she wanted me to become a doctor, but She'll now... compromise with medical device design. Definitely. <laughs> She's not gonna disown you oh, yeah. yet. She'll let me be for now. <laughs> Um, but thanks for sharing your journey. That's like that's a great um, kind of story to see how like an, a, how you became a young entrepreneur in this field. Um, so over the past year, I've been at UserWise for about a year and a half now. But over the past year, we've seen some really exciting stuff happen, and uh, 
a lot of buzzing, a lot of um, cool stuff that UserWise is up to. Do you want to speak to what are some of the things that excite you? It's been a wild ride. I don't know how many employees were here when you joined, maybe 12, 14. Uh, now Ish. we're at 27. Uh, so it's grown <laughs> tremendously in that short time. And part of that has just been huge amounts of demand. Also diving into in vitro diagnostic products for home use as part of the pandemic initiatives. Um, we developed ventilators and diagnostic products for COVID and all kinds of different things. Um, so, I mean, demand has been increasing, but also we've grown what we're offering. So we have an in-house IRB to review protocols um, so that we can more efficiently prepare for usability testing and not have any roadblocks when we're trying to get IRB approval. And we have a recruitment team that's been built out so that we can access all the difficult to access populations like those having rare diseases or during COVID, we were actually recruiting patients with COVID, which was the rarest disease I've ever recruited for, which is kind of ironic uh, to find people with active infections within like a four day window. It's like needing uh, threading a needle. <laughs> um, so our our um, recruitment team has just grown a ton and become a well-oiled machine with accessing these populations and also delving into design of instructions for use and design of user interfaces and um, kind of just slightly expanding the scope of what we're helping with um, in addition to what we've always done which is use related risk management uh, IEC 62366 compliance FDA correspondence related to human factors and of course usability testing Wow. Yeah. Um, I mean, you talking about IBD test kits takes me back because one of my first projects at UserWise was on a COVID-19 test kit. PTSD? <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, I think it was a good experience. And um, yeah, I'm grateful to have been part of a part of that ride for UserWise, um, you know, um, riding on UserWise's back. You know, it, it definitely <laughs> stemmed a huge amount of growth into the actual use usability testing space. Because we've always been a thought leader in actual use usability testing. I've conducted um, actual use usability testing with auto injectors and with diagnostics. Um, and I think that this intersection is going to grow in the future as the FDA is starting to require real world evidence. Um, there, I believe that in the future, uh, clinical testing will no longer have perfect users, perfect training, which is the paradigm right now. You minimize use errors during clinical testing to see whether the device itself has the expected effect. But I think the FDA is starting to see that perfect use isn't representative. And so now we're talking about intersecting human factors. So watching users experience mistakes and use the product incorrectly, and then also tying that in with outcomes. So in the case of a diagnostic product, you'd want to know, is it going to offer an incorrect diagnosis because it was used incorrectly? And this has an even uh, it has a paramount importance for lay users interacting with products in the home. That's especially where the FDA is going to be focused. So, by um, sort of delving in and being thought leaders in all these different spaces, emergency use authorizations, actual use usability testing, traditional human factors validation, it's just brought in a lot of opportunities for us to continue expanding our human factors offerings and our team. 
Yeah, um, I know anybody who works with you will be able to say that you're very passionate about actual use human factors testing. And I guess thanks for walking us through what the difference is between you know normal human factor study and an actual use. I guess that um, would it be accurate to say that an actual use human factor study is or actual use usability study is a, a combination of a clinical study with the realisticness of a simulated use study? Exactly. Yeah, and, and again, the soundbite is that um, clinical studies have perfect use mm -hmm. and an imperfect physiological outcome, and then a usability study has imperfect use, but we assume that the device is working as intended and obviously will have a good physiological effect. And I think historically it's been very useful to divide these two and make them very separate because they have opposing missions right but sometimes especially with diagnostics and especially with diagnostics for home use and with the rise of all the new ai products that are built into cell phones it's kind of difficult to ignore use error uh, in those clinical contexts um, and it, it might be useful to marry these two together in some in some ways but um, as a rule of thumb generally i try to d separate them yeah um, yeah, thanks for kind of walking us through that. Um, I guess talking about, you know, some nice updates or things that we've been doing here over the past year, one of the things that I've been a part of and something that I'm personally very excited about, and I'm sure so you, so are you, um, is the, the podcast. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really eager to see what you say next. The podcast is definitely not up on my, I'm kidding. No, uh, e even though I'm a nervous host, I think I'm getting there and I love being a part of this podcast. I've, I've made it very clear over the past three episodes. Um, but yeah, so I was going to talk about the, our joint venture, um, that we are doing sponsored by the FDA, the, the giant human factors, uh, I guess the giant study that, you know, is going to be an instrumental change potentially in policy and guidances that the FDA might put out about training decay. Oh, uh, I had almost forgotten. <laughs> no, I, I don't believe that. <laughs> but uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what UserWise been, has been up to with the FDA? Yeah, I mean, this kind of is within the scope of talking about user-wise history because in 2015-2016 I did an extensive uh, review, literature review of all existing texts surrounding training decay and there had been research related to CPR and there had been research related to acquisition of laparoscopic skills so those two areas were well researched but there really wasn't much literature to back up selection of a training decay for human factors validation outcomes. So. I presented at a conference all the best papers that I could find to support different training decay lengths uh, back in at HFBS in 2016. And this presentation was recognized by the FDA and they invited me to come um, to Maryland to present to them. And so after that, they invited me to apply to a broad agency announcement to get a grant. So we ended up securing a major grant um, to do UserWise's largest usability study we've ever done, statistic, a <laughs> I can't say statistically, <laughs> a statistically powered uh, large-scale study to investigate the effects of training decay on human factors validation outcomes. And we just completed all of the research with the participants, and now we're in the analysis phase. So it's just so exciting to be on the precipice of getting these results in 
Uh, we have various cohorts. We have zero time, one hour, which is the FDA minimum. You have to have at least a one hour gap between training and testing a participant on a medical device. Uh, we have one day and seven days. And uh, we, I guess I don't want to speak too soon, but we may have found that there's minimal difference between zero time and one hour, which is really interesting. Uh, on the average task performance, and we're in the middle of analyzing all that, but the implication there is that potentially we could see that one hour minimum go away or potentially get expanded in the case that we find that a seven day decay is substantially different from one day or one hour or zero time. So we're analyzing, but I think another key question with this on a, in a broader sense is, would our study have passed or failed? Um, so the idea behind uh, human factors research is that it's qualitative in nature, and so you're just looking to uncover design flaws. So if you're able to uncover all those design flaws at, with no training decay, and you uncover the same number of design flaws at zero time in seven days, it may not be productive to include a training decay at all. Um, so that's sort of the next level of analysis that we need to perform with this data. Wow. Uh, that sounds like implications that could affect, you know, multiple manufacturers. I mean, in this, the medical and device industry in itself. So, I mean, and the FDA guidance um, on how we go about training decay. That's pretty exciting. And to note that, I guess you started off um, with this in HFES 2016, you said. So that's almost like it's been growing. <laughs> the study has been happening since UserWise even began. So this this is an exciting time for UserWise because you know we'd be we're close to um, finalizing the re results on that. Um. And my hope for this um, work is that we can uh, become a citation and future guidance for the FDA um, in whatever they're going to recommend, whether they might recommend a real-time training decay to be simulated or a certain number of days to represent a longer number of days. And for those listeners who might not be as um, immersed in usability testing, um, it's not always practical to simulate real-time decays in human factors validation testing with medical devices. Because say you inject an auto-injector once a month, like to bring a bunch of people in, train them, send them home for a month, and then have you're probably only gonna have 50 to 75% of them actually return for testing. It's also slowing down your development timeline by a whole month, so a delay to market by a month potentially. Um, so these are just some considerations in development. So we're just trying to get to the bottom of, is training decay important? If so, we should simulate it. Um, if it is not important, then it's quite burdensome to manufacturers to simulate it. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure there are studies out there that say that, you know, as a factor of time um, between each testing session, you'll, your attrition is going to be exponentially higher. Um, your participants, like maybe even less than 50% might show up. And um, if there's any particularly passionate listener, then they might um, find such a paper. If not, maybe if I get a chance, I'll look into uh, putting one of that paper, such one such paper's link uh, in the description. Yeah, or the findings from our study, because we actually experienced that attrition, having people come back and comparing that seven-day cohort to the zero time and which individuals we were able to retain. I think that'll be really interesting to explore. Right. Um, yeah, can't wait to see what we found there. Um, one other thing, apart from training decay, that 
personally, I'm not very um, keen. Like, I, I guess I'm not clear or this is kind of a black box for me because I've not been personally very involved. Um, so I'm excited to hear you talk about is UserWise's foray into online courses. <laughs> That's pretty exciting because <laughs> I think there's not a better person. Uh, I guess there's not a better kind of group than my colleagues here to be you know, kind of giving this information to the broader human factors community. I'm very excited about this, but I have very little information about it. Can you like tell me what's going on? What's happening here? Well, it's something that I've had on my mind for a couple of years now. Um, at UserWise, we have hundreds of hours of internal trainings that we um, provide as people are onboarding and advancing in their careers. Absolutely. And um, the reality of the situation is that not all companies can hire consultants and uh, they do need skills in-house related to conducting usability testing. Also, I wanna empower our clients to do their own formative testing where it makes sense to do so, um, especially if it's like a quick study that you're running where you're having coworkers come into a conference room and try out using the device. It's a really great way to uncover flaws with a prototype quickly and cheaply. So I really want to further my mission of empowering them to perform human factors, uh, the process. And uh, also while you're taking the training, you can learn more about what our best practices are here at UserWise. So this is the first uh, training that we're launching. We hope to launch more trainings and even more advanced moderator trainings. But this is an introduction to moderating course. And it, I believe is a four hour, three to four hour course. It is interactive and has video. Uh, a lot of it is myself <laughs> presenting uh, the introduction to moderator training that we historically have uh, given to all of our staff here at UserWise. Um, so I, I think it's a fun training and it is jam-packed with helpful tips and tricks on how to conduct your own uh, usability studies. I see. Um, I mean, my first training here at UserWise for moderating was actually given by you. So, yeah, I'm sure this is going to be great. I remember some of the um, questions you had asked me, you know, like put me in some situations. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see how this course is going to be. Like, I, I personally like to, you know, take a look at it sometime. And, um, yeah, I'm just waiting for one of these days. I'll, I'll find some time. I'll look into this. But... Yeah, thanks for talking about that. That's very exciting. Um, I have been, you know, see, like listening, p these recordings being generated, like I've been seeing here and there, and I'm like, whoa, something It was a full team effort. Yeah, we, <laughs> you get to hear from various members of the UserWise team who might have different areas of expertise. Right. So I think it's a nice uh, glimpse into UserWise as well as it's educational. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I know that you have a busy schedule, so I don't want to take too much more of your time. Um, I guess one thing that I wanted to cover in this episode um, was where do you see this community, this, I guess, industry of human factors and medical devices, like this field heading um, in the sharp future and long-term future? Like, where do you see us going? What kind of trends do you, th you think might come up? Um, wh what are your... I guess, uh, predictions. <laughs> well, my hope is that in the future we can partner with risk management personnel to better embed human factors with risk management. I think there's some companies that are really evolving this and getting it right, and then other companies that really struggle. 
And I think at a high level, the theme of UserWise is taking a risk-based approach to design. So thinking about human error and baking safety into the design from the get-go and focusing on that and prioritizing efforts based on use error and potential harm to users and patients. So that's always been our theme and that has always been the theme from the FDA guidances that have come out since 2011. So um, I'm hopeful that that will progress, but uh, also the FDA did come out with a high priority guidance of devices that they're focused on. So uh, surgical robotics, ablation systems, uh, negative pressure wound therapy, those are all on the list, auto injectors. And the idea behind this draft guidance is that it's areas where the FDA uh, would definitely like to receive a human factors engineering submission report. It doesn't mean that other devices don't need to do human factors, but it definitely is representative of uh, devices where they definitely have to have everything buttoned up nicely for the FDA. And um, so I think the FDA will con continue to enforce in those areas and they, they have kind of doubled down in those areas. Also cleaning duodenoscopes, that's like another one on the list that they've been very focused on since 2016. But now we're seeing the emergence of all these um, new products like diagnostics using your phone, um, artificial intelligence. Um, there's a lot of activity in the space of neuromodulation products. So uh, these new products, while they might not be on the high priority list, I think there might be maybe a future guidance where they're, they, they identify certain products that should be on the high priority list. But I do think also there's gonna be a lot more home use diagnostics to empower, my hope is that it will empower lay people to take charge of their health in new ways. And uh, I really hope UserWise can be a part of that movement. That sounds great. Um... I know that you know the FDA released earlier this year um, the cybersecurity guidance, and it, it's kind of gearing towards uh, acclimatizing to the mo moving market terrain with like you know software-driven products, AI-driven products, um, as you mentioned, um, and even over the past year, I've the projects that I've led have significantly shifted towards more and more AI, uh, I guess, software basis. So I can see that totally for the industry. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I guess, do you have any other final comments before we close out for this episode? Well, thanks so much for having me. And I hope my story and journey are inspiring to those who also want to have a similar journey. <laughs> and if uh, you're listening and interested in human factors, we're always there for you. Uh, we have a lot of resources online, a blog. Um, check us out. Um, always happy to have a conversation. Yep, absolutely. And uh, we have, as Shannon was mentioning, the blog posts are all on our website. Um, we'll add links in the description below. And if you need any other help or if you have any questions based on the, the content of the episode or if you have any suggestions for future topics that we should cover, uh, please feel free to drop a comment um, or just email us. But yes, uh, thanks again for tuning in and thanks, Shannon, for coming in and sharing your thoughts. Always a brilliant time talking to you. Thanks, Shrieker. Uh, thanks. Bye. Bye. <laughs>